Lord, we do thank You for the cross. Where would we be if Your Son, our Savior, had not died? Father, thank You for the work that was accomplished on that cross. The triumph. The victory that is ours through the death of Your Son. Lord, we see love, lavish grace, mercy, and hope because our Savior is not dead. Those dark days while we waited for that resurrection Sunday. And Lord, the victory, the triumph, the joy, the conquering of death and sin and hell. We give praise to You, O God, for the fact that You love sinners like us. That You would move toward us, not because we're worthy, but because You are. We give praise to You that You would love us in such a way as to not only move toward us, but to give the most costly gift. The innocent and infinitely worthy blood of Your Son, Jesus. We give praise to You for Your salvation, for this great salvation, this redemption that we know, and the change that it has made in our lives. We We sing, Lord, from souls made alive by You. And we will sing forever because You are worthy. We praise You now and ask, Lord, as we open Your Word that You would work in power. Reveal Your glory in every word of every verse we study now that we would see Jesus and that we would know life and that we would worship rightly humbly before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of my sermon today is The Sinner's Feast, and uh, the backdrop I want to point out is a picture that we took from the top of Mount Arbel, which uh, is a, a, a very high point that looks out over the Sea of Galilee, the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, and right up in this area right over here is where we're going to be based today in Capernaum once again. There's so much that happens in Capernaum in this Gospel of Luke. So you can see the layout here, and I'll get you a picture that is a little bit more specific as we get in a little farther into the text. We're back in Capernaum. We have just witnessed the authority of Christ. He has cleansed a leper, and he has forgiven and made a paralytic to walk. This man tiptoed and danced his way all the way out of the room with his bed in hand, and he went home praising God. That's just taken place. Okay, That's the backdrop, and we're coming straight out of there now into what Luke is going to give us here this week. Chapter 5, verse 27 is where I want to begin. The sinner's feast. Now, this might not make a lot of sense to you at the beginning, but I'm hoping as we get in a little bit to the context... I am referring to Levi, or Matthew as we know him, the the writer of the very first gospel in your Bible. The the first words of the New Testament are written by this man. Um, But I think in this day, he would have been known as the little Mokis of Capernaum. The little Mokis. Now, it sounds cute, but it's not. 
Okay? It sounds, don't, don't call your, your little uh, daughter or son, hey, little Mokis, come here. No, it's not a term of endearment. And you will see more of what I mean as we get closer in here. Let's look at this verse. So after the raising of the paralytic and uh, making him walk and forgiving his sins, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, or as we know him, Matthew. I'm going to refer to him as Matthew for the sake of simplicity because uh, all the rest of the point forward, he's Matthew. He was sitting at the tax booth, okay? Now, just one verse, but that gives us tremendous context and a window into this man, his profession, his life, and really the reality of his experience in this uh, city. So, some background here. Roman occupation and taxation. Remember now, we're putting ourselves in Capernaum in this time. We are uh, under the occupying force of Rome by force. They have taken our nation and they rule with an iron fist. There are Roman troops that you do not mess with. There are people who are killed regularly. Uh, if you push back against Rome, you die. Okay, Roman occupation and they love to tax. Rome loved to, to, to lay a heavy tax burden on uh, the places that they occupied because they liked to build things and they liked grandeur. And even touring uh, places today, you can still see evidences of the fruit of their taxation. Lavish buildings of stone and uh, the ruins are incredible. So what they would do is they would go to uh, and offer in an area a tax franchise to the highest bidder. And whoever paid the most would buy the tax franchise and then uh, be required to make a certain amount of payment through Herod to Rome. Now, they would bring in a fixed amount for Rome, and anything that they brought in beyond that, they were lying in their pockets with. They were making a good living. And so it was a very lucrative field of work. Um, probably different than the IRS in our day, uh, as I don't think... Uh, we're encouraging our IRS people to take our money and keep as much as possible and then give whatever's left to the government. A couple different taxes were gathered. There were fixed taxes. One tax was called the poll tax. This is the tax you pay for just existing on the face of the earth. If you had a heartbeat and you were walking around, you're paying tax. And then another tax, an income tax, you had to pay. And then a land tax, which, which was a tenth of the grain that you brought in and a fifth of all of your wine and fruit went to uh, Rome. It came in. And so it was not just monetary, but also in produce. It, it came in in wagon loads to Herod and on to Rome. Now, there were other taxes. This is where things got really dicey. These were the duties and toll taxes. And these were not fixed. These were not just kind of a set amount that everybody knew. It was left to the discretion of the tax collector to not only decide what he would tax or how much he would tax, but uh, uh, all of the various things that he could invent that he could tax. And so there were taxes on roads. Every time you crossed a bridge, there would be a tax that you would have to pay. The, the joke here is uh, the tax on carts, they had a wheel tax. So if you had a, a cart that had four wheels, you pay four times. If you only had two wheels, you did a little better. Uh, the joke always was, well, what if your donkey only had three legs? Well, that's cheaper, right, than a four-legged donkey. 
it was crazy the stuff that they would tax. Produce and, and docking your boats and the number of boats and the number of fish. If you wanted to send a letter, um, there were sales tax imposed as well. Import, export, everything that you could think of would be taxed. You wonder, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Okay, we know about taxes. Probably not this bad. Capernaum was located, by the way, on one of the busiest trade routes in the area. In fact, if I can get my laser pointer here, I, I love this. You see where this road tracks right here, that dogleg road here? And then you see this right here? That's the old Roman road where all of the trade would pass through from the, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and then down along the Jordan River down to Jerusalem. We're talking an intersection of the world um, happening. And there's Levi having a tax booth in a very lucrative location. Okay, so a little more about tax collectors. There were two types of tax collectors. One was known as the goodbye. Let's say goodbye. One, two, three, goodbye. That's what you say to your money when he shows up, okay? <laughs> goodbye. He collects the fixed taxes, all right? So, um, uh, for instance, Zacchaeus, we know. Uh, we're going to see him in a few chapters. I think chapter 9, he was a goodbye, a chief tax collector in Jericho. Now, the other kind of tax collector that worked with the duty and, and toll taxes, they were named the Mokis. They were called the Mokis. Now, um, th there was the great Mokis. He was kind of like the godfather of the tax world. Okay, think mafia here. You've got your godfather. Now, he's not the guy out on the streets, you know, rolling people around and taking their lunch money. He's the guy in the big tower sitting back, benefiting the top of the pyramid. The great Mokis was the guy who got uh, the, the end result of all of the work of the little Mokis, okay? Who do you think was most hated in this time? The guy you never saw or the guy who was in your face day after day after day? Every time you pull your boat in, here comes the little Mokis. All right, time to pay up. Let's pay up. Let's see. Well, today I put an extra tax on how many uh, oars you have in your boat. Oh, you've got an extra one. That'll be an extra tax, right? Imagine how frustrating it would be. The little Mokis was the, uh, the, the capo here, right? The, the, the one who was on the streets, the kind of thug in force. So he was extorting, committing larceny, exploiting, even loan sharking. You, th you think where the mafia got this, that they were just studying uh, ancient past. There's nothing new under the sun. This looks like something of the history of our, our own experience with the mafia in our country here. Intimidation, violence, they would hire thugs to enforce what they imposed. And again, they could fabricate whatever they wanted. And you had no choice. You had to pay. Okay? Not too different than what might have been an experience maybe in the streets of New York when the mafia was at its high point. You get a Gambino coming in asking you to pay money and you're a baker and he comes in with two big guys, you pay. That's what you have to do. Do we understand why little Mokis is not a, a term of endearment? Levi is the little Mokis. And here's why I, I believe that. It's because uh, Luke tells us that he was sitting at the tax booth. The great Mokis would never do that. 
He is the, the man on the scene. He's on the street. He's in the face of the people day after day, taking their money and lining his pockets. And we're going to see in just a few verses, he was unbelievably good at what he did. He had a very large house, and he lived high on the hog. Okay, so the background is helpful. Now, here's a little more background for us because I want you to feel how mind-blowing this event is in his life. Tax collectors in Jewish society at this time were seen as men who traded their birthright to buy the tax franchise. They saw such little value in their identity as Jews and in their um, camaraderie as Jewish people that they would trade that away for money. They've partnered with Rome. They're taking Jewish money and giving it to the Gentiles. They were viewed as social outcasts. They were hated. They were despised. They were perpetually unclean. Um, the rabbis ranked tax collectors among the likes of unclean animals and criminals and prostitutes. Uh, there were rabbis that taught that God would never save a tax collector. He couldn't do it. Uh, repentance was impossible for a tax collector. They were barred from worship altogether. Synagogues, they couldn't enter in. Uh, nor were they allowed to even give testimony in a court hearing because they were seen as habitual liars and thieves. And so their testimony was completely eliminated from the legal system. Jews were given permission, even, to lie and defraud tax collectors as much as they could. Think of this. The rabbis were encouraging faithful Jews to deceive and uh, try to avoid and keep from, as much as they could, the tax collector taking their money. That is the nature of this man in Capernaum. Popular guy, huh? Not so much. Now, R. Kent Hughes summed it up by saying this. Jewish tax collectors were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. They were seen as despicable, rich vermin. You see those words coming together? How dare they take the money of hard-working Jews, live high on the hog, and hand it to Herod and Rome? And that's what they did day after day. Now, Jesus goes out, and Mark tells us this little detail here. He goes out again beside the sea. Beside the sea, in Mark we learn. And all the crowd was coming to him. So you've got a lot of people gathering around, which is common for Christ at this time. The crowds are pushing in, and he's teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Okay, so I want you to picture here, we're by the Sea of Galilee on the north edge. Um, we saw something similar to this off, off a drone shot. Here is the uh, synagogue, and here is what, where Peter's house would have been, and here's the, the water's edge. Now, I got a better shot this time because this is that cove, I believe, where Jesus would have been teaching, and Peter's boat would have probably been sitting right about here. Look at the natural uh, just curvature, and, and thousands of people could then hear Jesus as he was teaching right there. It's likely that as Jesus is passing by, this is happening somewhere along in here, somewhere right in the, the heart of the city where there's a lot of traffic and a lot of activity. 
Levi has his tax booth. By the water. That's significant because I think it brings together what might be some, some history here with these fishermen that Jesus has already called. Think of this. Peter and Andrew, fishermen. James and John, their partners, fishermen. Who do you think every time they came in with a great catch would have been waiting at the shore? You guys look kind of tired. Looks like you caught a lot of fish. Come on over here. We'll settle up, right? Levi, they know this guy. And they see Jesus lock eyes with him. And if you're Peter, you're like, he wouldn't. No, 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 Jesus, don't. You wouldn't. Hmm. Here's the question that begs. How much sin can Jesus forgive? How bad off can you be and still be forgiven by Christ? Is anyone beyond the reach of His grace? Is anyone too far gone? What is the, the reach of of the saving power of God. I think Jesus is about to illustrate this in a way that none of these men would ever forget. Look at what he does. It says he went out, in Luke here now, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. The word saw there, it, it's, it doesn't capture it for us just like that. Jesus looked at Levi. It is a purposeful, deep, evaluative, pondering gaze. That's what that word carries. It's as if he looks right through him. And you could just almost picture this. Jesus stops and he locks eyes. And then he speaks. And I mean, if you're, if you're Matthew in the tax booth, you're sitting there. Here's the thing. He's heard Jesus. You, everyone has. This is Jesus' home base. This is Capernaum. He has probably witnessed some of these miracles that Jesus has done. Now, I imagine when all of the crowds gathered to hear him preach, he probably was at the back, just listening in. You know, it's not like people are going to let him in up to the front row, but he's listened in, and he has heard this man preach, and teach, and Call sinners to repentance. And all of a sudden, Jesus is locking eyes with him. And if you're Levi, you're kind of like, hmm? you, you're looking at me? And then Jesus speaks. And he said to him two words. Follow me. <laughs> we fail to feel the impact of those two words. You have the most hated man in Capernaum as the recipient of the most longed-for words that all of the crowd behind him could, could ever hope to hear. And Jesus locks eyes with the tax collector and with words of command says to him, Follow me. 
this would have blown. I mean, people would have been falling over, astonished that Jesus would, would consider this. If you're Peter, especially so. Oh, wait. Oh. He did it. He did it. And then you're probably remembering your own words, if you're Peter. Depart from me. I'm a sinner. Not worthy. And neither is he. And neither is he or he. Neither am I. All of a sudden, the answer to the question, how much sin can Jesus forgive, got real clear when he called the little Mokis of Capernaum to be a disciple. But here's the question. What will his response be? Because as astonishing as the invitation is, the command, follow me, is, the reality is, is that has to land in this man. He has a lucrative tax franchise. He has gold adorning his neck, rings on his fingers. He is sitting in a posh tax booth. He's got a place, a palace on the hill. He's got influence, authority. He has all of these things. He is at the top of his game. The world would look on and say, don't do it. That's a terrible career move. Look how hard you work to climb to the top of the corporate ladder. For what? Why would you walk away from that? Look at what he does. And leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. This is awesome. There's something that has happened here in the heart of Matthew the tax collector that is overcoming all that he has known and seen. What has taken place? Two words. Follow me. I would call this irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Jesus made him an offer that he couldn't refuse, if we're using mafia language, right? This is... This is grace so spectacular, so filled with value that Levi hears those words and he says, you know what? Forget it. Takes off the patch, takes off the chains, leaves the rings. I'm I'm walking. I'm following. He leaves it all behind. In that moment, I believe that the Spirit of God worked a wonder changed this man's heart from a a world desire to a kingdom desire. Opened his eyes to see the treasure that Christ was. Infinitely valuable compared to what? Compared to what? It's as if his heart screamed to him, this is too good to pass up. You hear these words. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He walks away. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship. Listen to these amazing words. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requirement, requiring of repentance. Cheap grace is is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. 
Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It is grace without a cross. Costly grace is, listen close, is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Christ at which the disciple leaves everything and follows Christ. I love that. I love that. If you're not looking at this and saying, worthless compared to Christ, you need to look again at Christ. You've missed who He is. His grace is irresistible. He's that good. It's infinite. Bonhoeffer goes on and he says this, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner, we would say, through through the work of Christ. Above all, it's costly because the cost of it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, Paul writes. And what a and what cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. You see what we're saying? The call of Christ is you are to treasure nothing more than me. And Matthew says, I'm all in. Let's go. And standing up, he walks away from a tax franchise he will never, ever possess again. How many people do you think were chomping at the bit to take his place? He was replaced as soon as he stood up. Rome didn't care. They'll find someone new to betray his people. And Matthew follows Jesus. And he never was the same. He was a changed man. Given the honor to pen the first words of the New Testament. The little Mokis of Capernaum. That's grace. That's transformation through Jesus Christ. Now, look at what he does. This is awesome. This is a display of, uh, of transformation in view right here. Jesus, friend of sinners, verse 29. And Levi made him, made Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Okay, so you have these conversations taking place. You have uh, Jesus now walking alongside Matthew, and they're talking. And at some point along the way, this idea comes up. And he, he says, you know what I should do? I should host a party, a celebration about what has happened here and invite 
all of my friends. Now, uh, if you are the little Moquise of Capernaum, who are your friends? Who, who do you think your friends are? They're all fellow mafia people, right? I mean, these are, these are the lowest of the low, the sinners, the tax collectors. So he sends word out all around the region, and they gather the most motley crew you could ever imagine. Now, in our day, they'd be rolling up wearing fur coats with canes, right? Rolls Royces, you know, women on each arm. This, in this day, who knows what this looked like? This was the sinner's feast. And he invites them all. The worst of the worst. The most hated of all. And Jesus says, bring them all. Tell them all. It's an evangelistic farewell party to remember. The likes that Capernaum had never seen. See, this, was, this was a big deal. And th- a lot of people came out to this, and it caused a stir, I'm sure, in Capernaum. The sinner's feast. Here's Jesus in the middle of it all. Guest of honor, I'm sure. Reclining, eating, teaching, discussing, and... What's he doing? Calling them to repentance. He's calling them to repentance. In doing this, he engages them in a way they have never been engaged. Just think about this. If you are sitting in the tax booth and you are Matthew, and the Pharisees are kind of the, uh, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they hate you so much, they won't even come near you. They're not going to talk to you. And they're certainly not going to encourage you to repent of your sin. Here's Jesus. He's at the table, reclining. The table would have been low, and they they sat kind of on their side like this, and it it would go for hours. Conversation, food, and he's calling them. He's listening to them. He's engaging with them in a way they have literally never had. Jesus' friend of sinners. Here's what this was not. This was not Jesus saying, I can't stand those church people. I don't want to hang out with Christians. I just like being around uh, the motley crew. The, the, I, I just, these people just get me. That's not what this is. This is evangelistic. This is purposeful. This is mission. He is engaging He is teaching and reaching in this. It is hope for the unforgivables of their society. Jesus speaks words of hope. He calls them to repentance. He encourages them. He meets them where they're at. This doesn't sit well with the Pharisees, (laughs) as you can imagine. Just picture this, okay? They're in Capernaum. What's happening up on the hill? Oh, Jesus is having a banquet with all the tax collectors from the region and sinners, which would have assumed Gentiles. What? We need to go see this. I don't believe he would. He wouldn't do that, would he? And so here comes the religious elite and they make their way up the hill and they're going to see what's happening. And they look in and they are appalled what they see. What are they going to say? Well, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. They grumbled. Now, You've got to have that word function in the way they speak. They grumbled at the disciples. You guys eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. What are you thinking? 
you think you are? You're not supposed to do this. These guys are unclean. You can't go in there. Pharisaical killjoys. That's what they are. That's what this is. Their only thought is that this, this is inappropriate. Jesus should fall in line and do what we do. And, and he, clearly, he's out of bounds here. We, don't, we do not approve. This is not okay. And note this. They take their, their, their uh, attack, their displeasure, their grumbling, and they go to who? The disciples. Who at this point are made primarily up of fishermen. Who may, in fact, be still a little struggling with this whole idea that the little Mokis is now one of them. This is strategic, right? This is a strategic attack. It's a targeted grumble. They don't go to Jesus because they find it difficult to accuse him and come out on the, the good side of that equation. So they go to his disciples. And how this went down, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe Jesus overheard them grumbling. I think it's likely that one of the disciples came in and, and, uh, and said, Jesus, Pharisees are wound up out here. They're saying that what you're doing is inappropriate. We shouldn't be in here. You want to talk to them? Maybe something like that. Somehow, Jesus now comes to respond to these Pharisaical killjoys. This is what he says. Jesus answered them and he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what he tells them. And at first, at first they hear this and they're like, oh, okay, that's great, great. Wait a second. Um, are you being sarcastic? Yeah. Do you see it? Do, do you feel these words? This is a rebuke. Those who have ears to hear will hear this for what it is. Those who are absolutely blinded by self-righteousness will be like, oh, okay, well, you hang out with the sick people. Thank you for saying that we're righteous and we're, we're okay. We don't need salvation. The nature of pride is that it blinds to need. There is no place for pride when you stand before Jesus. No place at all. The Pharisees come with this, this, it's almost like salvation by segregation. They, they think somehow that, that the, the way to be righteous is to completely remove yourself and keep yourself away from all of the sinners and then judge them and, and point your finger and, and, and look down upon them and make yourself feel good. It, somehow you feel more righteous that way. And Jesus says, um, you think you're healthy, but you're sicker than ever. That's the irony of the healthy is that they're blinded to how sick they really are. Everyone on that hill needs Jesus as Savior, including those who walked around with their self-righteousness and their judgmental attitudes pointing the finger at the tax collectors and sinners. lands us here 
humility and hope. Humility is rightly assessing God's holiness and my sinfulness. That's humility. When I see him for who he is, and then I look down and I see me for who I am, I I understand what sin is. It falls short, way short. Which is why you see over and over, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner. I am unworthy. Humility and hope go hand in hand. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus came to save not the people who think they're righteous, but the people who know they're not. There has never been someone who has come to Jesus for salvation on the basis of their righteousness. Never. You you come to Jesus acknowledging, I am lost, messed, I am am bound for hell. I am a slave to sin. I am blind. I'm a rebel at heart. I do not measure up. I am unworthy. Save me. Please save me. Salvation in Jesus is not for people who think they're righteous. It's for people who know they're not. I've come not for the healthy, but for the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners to repentance. You're a sinner. Let me say it again. You're a sinner to the core. And so am I. Apart from God's grace, we run with all our might against God, against His righteousness, against His law, against His rules, against His character, against everything right and true and good. We run to the fires of hell. And that's exactly what we get. Injustice and wrath. Apart from His grace. His grace comes to sinners. Every time it's a sinner who is the recipient of His lavish grace. And He takes the head of the sinner who runs with all his might to the fires of the hell and he turns his head and he says, at the moment of that call, he says, look at Jesus, my son. Look at Him. And with eyes made to see, we see glory, a treasure, a pearl of great price. And then we look back at what we were running for and longing and living for and worshiping and we say, nothing. There's nothing there. I choose Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Praise God for His grace. Otherwise, we're all doomed. Praise God for the good news of the Gospel that would save the likes of us. Now, in our self-help, self-esteem day where we work really hard to convince ourselves that we're all okay everything's great we can fail a test and pat ourselves on the back i still did good no you didn't you failed the test right i mean seriously at some point we've got to deal with reality we need to come to the place of serious assessment of our sin 
And then we need to turn and say, what a Savior we have. What a friend we have. What a hope we have in Jesus. He is the only hope. He is the only hope for sinners. And so, this morning I want to ask you a question of these two groups, of these two individuals. Who are you? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Who would you rather be? The healthy one or the sinner? In reality, they're both in sin. One acknowledges reality. The other tries to create his own by wearing filthy rags of works and righteousness. would call you this morning to your knees before a God who is holy and righteous, who will punish sinners and rebels in the fires of hell forever for their arrogant railing and rebelling against Him. And I want to call us to our knees collectively together and say, there's another way. It's the way that Jesus has opened up for us. The love of God. Forgiveness. Listen to what John says in 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Why? Because we're all sinners in desperate need of salvation. However, if we confess our sins, promise, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Promise. That, that's spectacular. And that is the call of the Gospel today. I pray that it lands in you irresistible, so precious, so pure and radiant that when you think that Jesus took your sin and was nailed to that cross in your place to pay for the sins that you have committed against a righteous and holy God. And then He died the death that you deserve. And then He was raised victorious over all of that and offering life now in His name. I pray that you will see that and say, I want to follow Jesus. No turning back. He has my heart. He is my treasure. He is my Savior. I make Him my Lord. My life is His. My days are His. My destiny, I trust completely into His hands and I lean upon His promises. Let's pray. Father, it's Your love that calls us to deal in reality. And yet so often this world seeks to distract us and to lure us away from the clarity of Your Word and truth. Father, we confess We are prone to wander. We have this propensity in us, this lingering uh, sin nature that just just drives us away from You. We want that. We, We choose that left to ourselves. Lord, thank You that in Your goodness and Your grace, You don't leave us to ourselves, but You meet us with good news 
and hope and love and grace and truth. And sometimes you, you, you wake us up out of our sinful sleep to show us the face of Christ. You change us forever. Lord, if there are any here today who have caught a glimpse of glory, I pray that today you would land in their life the good news of the gospel in only the way that you can. Make them live, I pray. Turn them to you to see Jesus and and free them to, to joyfully and willingly choose to follow him. No turning back. Open their eyes to see you for who you are. Lord, remind them that they don't have to be good enough to qualify to be your children because Jesus was. Remind us, Lord, that it is finished and our sins have been paid for in full. Remind us, Lord, to delight in you above all else and to follow you and let nothing take our focus away. Lord, keep our resolve solely upon Jesus. I thank you for a church filled with people who are not good enough. Thank you for the change that you make in our lives, for the way that you grow us and build us. We give praise to you, we glorify you, and we live for you now in Jesus' name. Amen.